0: 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 to 25. We're looking at these eight verses as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men and for my big idea tonight I have the preaching of the gospel leads to salvation but the wisdom of the world leads to destruction and I'm, going, I'm, I'm attempting to make three points Three, three lesser points to make that greater point point number one the wisdom and power of God in Christ and in the message of the cross point number two God's determination to destroy human wisdom point number three God's determination to save those who believe in Christ and in the message of the cross now the Bible has a lot to say a lot to show about wisdom throughout its 66 books. Our minds think immediately about the five books of the Old Testament which we call wisdom literature. These five books are Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon and I guess probably most notably, most famously the book of Proverbs. From sayings and statements and and declarations to the lives of men and women who were examples of wisdom. All is there in the Bible for all to read and to benefit. perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible about wisdom is Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10, which says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Or perhaps it is some other verse that I have not mentioned, but my intention here tonight is not to see which verse is the most <laughs> famous verse about wisdom, but my intention is to show. Among other things, the wisdom of God in Christ and in the message of the cross. So point number one, the wisdom and power of God in Christ and in the message about the cross. Look at verse 24 as we start out and take note of the latter part. It says, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here in verse 24, the Apostle clearly states that Christ is both the power and the wisdom of Almighty God. Earlier in verse 22, he states that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Quite frankly, this is the unbelieving response that anyone would give to Christ. And the message about the cross, apart from the sovereign work of God's grace. Apart from God working in the life of an individual, this is kind of like the response that any human being would give. They would receive, they would demand signs, and they would seek after wisdom, human wisdom. God had long from old times favored the Jews with signs and miracles and splendid acts of omnipotent power. Every Jew was brought up on the Torah. And the prophets that recorded for them the mighty acts that God had done for their nation. Then the Messiah came and wrought, more miracle, sorry, and wrought more miracles among them. Quite frankly, he gave them signs like no other person did. In John 9 verse 32, we have the testimony of a man that Christ healed of congenital blindness. We have his testimony to the unbelieving Pharisees. He told them, since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? In Mark 6, 34 to 44, we have an account of Christ feeding at least 5,000 people. And Matthew's account of this sign in chapter 14, verse 21 says, 5,000 men beside women and children. Christ takes five loaves and two fishes and fed at least 5,000 people. And he ended up with 12 baskets. (laughs) <laughs> yeah kind of like talk, talk about mass addition <laughs> multiplication yeah or how about when christ raised the only son of the widow of Nain in luke chapter 7 verse 11 to 17 or in mark six forty-eight, jesus came to the disciples about the fourth watch of the night walking upon the sea in matthew 8 verse 26 christ rebuked the winds and the sea causing a great calm, and showing that he was indeed lord of nature and lord of the forces of nature and then there was the greatest sign the sign of all signs the sign par excellence the infallible sign that Christ gave to show beyond the shadow of a doubt who he was and after all this we still read for the Jews (laughs) the man of signs and the Greeks hit after wisdom that sign of all signs that sign par excellence was the resurrection the Bible says he laid down his life And he took it, took it back up to show infallibly who he was. And we have not talked yet about Moses and his signs, about Elijah and his signs, about Elisha and his signs. We have not mentioned yet the apostles and the signs that God wrought through them. And yet the Jews require signs. Albert Barnes in his notes write a miracle a prodigy, an evidence of divine interposition. This was characteristic of the Jewish people. God had manifested himself to them by miracles and wonders in a remarkable manner in past times, and they greatly prided themselves on that fact and always demanded it. When any new messenger came to them professing to be sent from God, this propensity they often evinced in their contact with the Lord. It was characteristic of the Jews to demand the constant exhibition of miracles and wonders. And it it is also implied here, I think, by the reasoning of the apostle that they believed that the communication of such signs and miracles to them as the people would secure their salvation. And they therefore despised the simple preaching of a crucified redeemer. They expected a Messiah that should come with exhibition of some stupendous signs And wonders from heaven, they looked for displays of amazing power in his coming and they anticipated that he would deliver them from their enemies by mere power and they therefore were greatly offended by the simple doctrine of a crucified saviour. And what about the Greeks? Paul says, and the Greeks demand wisdom. The wisdom of the world, that is, natural wisdom, philosophy, the reason of things, the flowers of rhetoric, The ornaments of speech, the beauties of oratory, the justness of style and diction. Christ and his cross was foolishness to them. It was unphilosophical. They laughed at the account of a crucified saviour and despised the apostles' way of telling it. They sought for wisdom. The Greeks were men of wit and reading, men that had cultivated arts and sciences and had For some ages, being in a manner the very mate of knowledge and learning. There was nothing in the plain doctrine of the cross to suit their taste, nor humour their vanity, nor gratify a curious and wrangling temper. They entertain it, therefore, with contempt and scorn. The Greeks would reason something like this. What hope to be saved by one that could not save himself? and trust in one who was condemned and crucified as a male factor a man of mean birth and poor condition in life and cut off by so vile and opprobrious a death the Greeks thought it little better than stupidity to receive such a doctrine they could not reconcile servitude with sovereignty punishment with innocence the lowest of human miseries with the highest of divine honors And accordingly esteemed it foolishness to expect eternal life from him that was put to death and that he should bring them to the highest glory who suffered himself in the lowest weakness. Instead the Greeks sought such wisdom as they found in the writings of Cicero, Seneca, Plato and Aristotle which was called philosophy and which came to them in all the beauties and graces of the Latin and Greek languages. The Jews sought for signs and the Greeks sought wisdom, Paul says. But little did they know that both these things which they sought were in Christ. They did not know that. In Colossians 2, 3, we read about Christ that in him, in whom, sorry, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ himself. In Hebrews 1, 3, we learn that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Power and wisdom, two things that human beings seek. And guess what? Both are in Christ, in his person and in his word. Now, John would have spoken last week about the Philosopher's Stone, Jonathan, and the elixir of Life. And these are the things that the Greeks would have sought after. And they would have thought that these things are wise. Not only is the power and wisdom of God to save in Christ, But it is also in the message about the cross or the gospel. Look at verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, Paul says it is the power of God. In verse 24, Paul says, Christ is the power of God. But here in verse 18, Paul says, The word of the cross is the power of God. All the signs that the Jews sought would and could never save them. Only the power of Almighty God in the message of the cross, about the Christ of the cross would save them. One person notes that what the Jews really wanted were the signs of an outward external kingdom. They wanted wanted temporal triumphs over their enemies and material greatness. What people want today and what people want 2000 years ago are strikingly similar. If not the same, you know, if Christ would give us a big house and a big car and a big business and about $500 million on his bank, and if he would fix certain folks for us that we don't like and uh, put them into the place, and if he would cause them to come to bow down at our, at our feet, then probably we might, you know, we might begin to think about Christ but I think the answer is no I think even if that were to happen I still think that human sinful nature would still not be willing to bow before Christ even if Christ was to tickle all of our fantasies I still think apart from sovereign grace apart from the word of the Holy Spirit I think man would still reject him change can only come through the preaching of the gospel All of the philosophizing and speculation of the Greeks, with all their reason, could never save them. Only the power of God in the message of the cross, about the Christ of the cross, could save them. Look at verse 21. It says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. Here we have the wisdom of God to save men in the message of the cross and Paul says it pleased God to do so also in verse 25 Paul says with irony for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men verse 21 and verse 25 do two things among others they show that indeed the wisdom of God to save men is present in the message of the cross and two they show how unbelievers perceive the gospel Charles Hodge writes in his commentary on verse 25, and he quote, This is a confirmation of what precedes. The gospel is thus efficacious because the lowest manifestation of divine wisdom exceeds the highest results of human wisdom and the lowest exercise of God's power is more effectual than all the human strength. He says, Or instead of taking the verse in this general sense, the foolishness of God may mean the gospel the meaning then is the doctrine of the cross though regarded as absurd and powerless has more power and wisdom than anything that ever proceeded from mankind and of course but what about our fallen condition today what about our sinful natures the unregenerate man would look at the gospel and the things of god and he would write them off as folly But we would never do that, right? No, we would not say that. Because we we don't want to blaspheme. But how about that there's some part of God's word or some doctrine that just doesn't sit well with us. Yeah. (laughs) It might be some aspect or aspects of Christian living that we might think God is asking a bit too much. I've had this conversation with my wife more than once. And I think I've had it with someone in here and I ask myself do, do I really think that God is a bit too much all in my grill you know could he like just step back just a little do, do we sometimes feel as though God is requiring too much of us you know and we would not down, downright say that God's word is stupid or foolish but there might be some aspects that we might not really score too high on <laughs> all right. counter this but let us remind ourselves that God has every right to demand from us whatsoever he desires, because he is our creator one and also because he is our redeemer so in Christ and in the message of the cross is the power of God to save men. point number two God's determination to destroy human wisdom look like at verse 19 it says For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This is a divine determination and God will do it. Paul quotes from Isaiah 29 verse 14 where God says he will destroy their wisdom and discernment because of their hypocrisy. God said they were drawing near to him with their mouths and honoring him with their lips only while their hearts were far from him. John MacArthur writes, The principle of resorting to human wisdom rather than divine wisdom was the spiritual plague of Jerusalem. This was the downfall of the Greek world world also. And to be honest, this is the downfall of our modern world. This is the downfall of modern man. To resort to himself, to flee to himself, to confide and trust in himself himself rather than in God and the revealed, inspired word that we have. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Because they looked at the word of the cross, which is the wisdom of God, and called it folly, God will take their wisdom and destroy it. The punishment fits the crime. and In essence, God will do the same thing with their discernment. He will thwart thwart it, or as the King James puts it, he will bring their understanding to naught. Leon Morris writes, Paul clinches his argument with a quotation from Isaiah 29, 14. Paul is not saying something new. For of old, God's way has stood in contrast with that suggested by human wisdom. People always think their way is right, but God confutes their wisdom. He reduces their systems to nothing. Remember, we're talking about God's determination to destroy human wisdom. In this context, there's not much difference between wisdom and intelligence. Properly, the former denotes mental excellence in general. The latter intelligent, critical understanding of the bearing of things. Neither can stand before God. Paul goes on to show God's determination to destroy human wisdom by asking a series of three questions. It says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Leon Morris writes, Paul hammers home the point with a series of rhetorical questions. Some have thought that the wise man means the Greek sophist. The scholar means the Jewish scribe. While well, the philosopher of this age means both, others reverse the significance of the first and last, but it is unlikely Paul has such distinctions in mind. His point is that no human wisdom can avail before God, and he uses three, three typical terms for the learned and acute of this world. There's also a glance at the transitory nature of human wisdom in the use of, of this age, This world is but a passing show, and its wisdom passes with it. God has not simply disregarded human wisdom or shown it to be foolish, but he has made it foolish. Paul leaves not the slightest doubt that God has rejected all that rests merely on human wisdom. In verse 19, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And in verse 20, he has done it. He has done it so much so that Paul asks the question, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That which God has determined to do, he has done. So where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? God indeed has made foolish the wisdom of the world. We also see God destroying human wisdom and bringing it to naught in verse 21. Verse 21 says that man by his own wisdom was not able to know God and our minds can think of the millions of people from ancient times until now who have tried to know God by their own wisdom and have failed and died and gone to hell we can think of the millions of Hindus millions of Muslims millions of pagans polytheists pantheists humanists the millions of people trying to, as it were, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps who have failed miserably and gone to hell. God destroy human wisdom. They will never know him through it. Every age has its Jews and Greeks, its blind devotees to the supernatural and its self-sufficient worshippers of human wisdom. But they will never know God through human wisdom. Thirdly, we can look at God's determination to save those who believe on Christ and in the message of the cross. Thank God for good news. In the first half of verse 21, we see man's failure to know God through his own wisdom. But in the second half of the verse, we have God's pleasure, which is to save men through the preaching of the message of the cross. The Greek word here for "please" means to be well pleased, to think it good, not merely an understanding of what is right and good, but stressing the willingness and freedom of an intention or resolve regarding what is good. Paul says it pleased God. Praise God for the gospel and praise God that we don't need to have two PhDs to understand the gospel or to be saved. God ordained the plain preaching of Jesus as the means of salvation for mankind. And he was pleased to do so. So we see God's determination to save men through the gospel. Even though a man has rebelled against God, God is determined to save him. Our rebellion in requiring signs and more signs, and signs still more, and our rejection of divine wisdom in favor of human wisdom cannot thwart a divine determination. To save men. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. At least two things are occurring here simultaneously. On the one hand, people are perishing because they are rejecting the word of the cross. These are people who in unbelief are asking for more signs, never satisfied, and these are people who have written off God's wisdom in favor of humanism but on the other hand god's determination to save men is in full effect paul says but to us who are being saved it is the power of god there is a contrast between those who are perishing and us who are being saved ultimately all must fall into one of these two classes because there is no other Also, we see God's determination to save men in verse 21. It says, For saints in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Can man's unbelief hinder the purposes of God? No. God is determined to save men. Even though men persist in their humanism, which can never lead them to God, God has determined to save men Paul says it was God's pleasure not only is God determined but pleased to do so Leon Morris in his commentary on verse 21 says it is unlikely that the wisdom of God here refers to the revelation in nature as some whole they think that Paul means that when people fail to hear God speaking through the world of nature he spoke to them in another way But the thrust of the passage is against all such views. Paul is saying that God in his wisdom chose to save people by the way of the cross and by no other way. Please fix his attention on God's free and sovereign choice. It was never his plan that people should come to know him by their exercise of wisdom. God was pleased to reveal himself in quite a different way. End of quote. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Irrespective of what the Jews demanded or what the Greeks sought after, Paul says we preach one thing Christ crucified. God's determination is that men will be saved only one way through the preaching of the cross. So the Jews can throw a tantrum, and the Greeks can throw a tantrum, and barbarians can throw a tantrum, or anyone who wants to throw a tantrum can th- can throw a tantrum. Men will be saved only through the preaching of the gospel. We can shake our fists in at the clouds. We can hold conferences about it. <clears throat> we can be two or three, we can act like two or three years old about it. We can demonstrate or remonstrate about it. God's sovereign determination is to save men only by the preaching of the cross alone. We know that we live in a day and time where humans think that truth or right or wrong can be determined by a popular vote. Or we think that everything can be changed by a referendum, (laughs) by democracy. Um, We think that we can demonstrate or remonstrate or have a dialogue or we could shout down each other or we could protest or we can just act ridiculous. In the face of whatever the Jews and the Greeks demanded God will save men through the message of the cross alone. Let us at CRBC take a leaf out of Paul's book Many in our time demand the prosperity gospel, but what will we give them? Christ crucified. <laughs> Some demand walking in dominion or walking in faith, but what will we give them? Christ crucified. Some churches have gone down the line of social justice. But what do they need? Christ crucified. Some have gone down the road of moralism. You know, they will say, Men love your wives men support your families women honor your husbands love your husbands children obey your parents don't do drugs be a good citizen of your country and there's nothing wrong with these things but they say these things as though these things occur apart from Christ and apart from his grace Or uh, as though if we do these things that somehow it means that we are safe Or that somehow we can do these things and achieve salvation through the law. But let us preach Christ crucified no matter what the world demands. Finally, God's determination to save those who believe the gospel is seen in the effectual call. Look at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Charles Hodge writes, those whom God has called always means those called effectually as distinguished from those who are merely externally invited. There's a double call of the gospel, the one external by the word, the other internal by the spirit. The subjects of the latter are designated as the called. The Jews wanted a display of power The Greeks sought for wisdom. Both are found in Christ in the highest degree. He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In his person and work, there is the highest possible manifestation of both divine power and of divine wisdom. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But those whom God has determined to save, he has called effectually to himself through the preaching of the cross. In closing, as we consider these eight verses, the irony of it all is this, that God has ordained that those who reject Christ and the message of the cross in favor of human wisdom and power end up foolish, powerless, and ultimately will perish. But those who by grace and through faith believe on Christ and in the message of the cross end up with wisdom and power and ultimately are saved Because the preaching of the gospel leads to salvation, but the wisdom of the world leads to destruction.